do you want me to say the fry or Joe Tugas and Antfi of the fry or how do you want to be introduced? Two dipshits from Mankato? Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Sounds great. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of Freepcast. Freepcast is brought to you by the Free Press Media and is recorded at the KMSU studios on the campus of Minnesota State University, Mankato. Um, today, our guest on uh, on the show, on the pod, is Anne Fee. Anne is the director of the Arts Center of St. Peter. Um, so she will talk to us all about her uh, what it's like to do that job. Um, she's also a member of uh, the band The Fry, which you've probably heard if you've been to a a bar or a tavern in southern Minnesota, and um, her partner in that endeavor is Joe Tugas, and Joe Tugas is going to be joining us as well with his guitar, and the two of them will perform a few songs for us uh, on the on the front end of the podcast today. Joe had to Joe had to skedaddle, so we let him uh, do his thing and uh, be on his way. Um, but they will be playing a few songs from the Hank and Rita soundtrack, which Joe and Ann uh, had a really nice run with Hank and Rita. Um, ended uh must have been about a year ago or so um so they'll be they will be performing a few songs from that um also Anne uh, has a really cool project coming up um if you're hearing this on uh friday or saturday you might want to get down to patrick's on third and st peter she's got this uh amazing uh pageant and sing-along project uh featuring the songs of the rocky horror picture show and the meatloaf album bad out of hell and um, they've been rehearsing for, for months to get this thing just right. And I've been to a, 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 a rehearsal. And I can tell you it's going to be a really good time. So if you've got nothing to do tomorrow night, um, today is October 25th. So tomorrow the 26th, they'll be at Patrick's on 3rd. Get there early. It's going to be packed. Um, so Ann uh, talks about that. And we talk about her uh, side hustle as a tarot reader and uh, lots of other things. So... Uh, stick around, give it a listen. It's a really good episode. And uh, without further ado, here's the show. I might have let you hurt me too many times before. And I know it was only me who forced you out that door. I might be the crazy one to think we'll see this through But I made no mistake I made no mistake I made no mistake in loving you Everybody means well I shouldn't be surprised When even some old lovers say these days are passing by They remind me of your crimes and nights I cried a flood of blue But I made no mistake I made no mistake I made no mistake In loving you For giving me a fight For showing me your tears 
for giving us a lifetime in just a few short years I'm proud to hold your hand when you have a hand to give this love life ain't perfect but it's how I wanna live and maybe when it all goes down I'll seem the biggest fool but I made no mistake I made no mistake I made no mistake in loving you I made no mistake I made no mistake I made no mistake in loving you Thank you that was fantastic. Hey, thank you. Do you feel as Do you feel as heartbroken as the first time you heard it? I feel like I'm right back in uh, studio was Studio Six. Yeah. Oh yeah. For Hank and Rita, when I saw it that night. Uh, yes, that was. By the way, uh, we'll get we'll get to that later on. But that was fantastic that night, and uh, so was that. Thanks. Thanks. Um, now, as opposed to no mistake, here will be plenty. Here will be plenty of mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's been a long time. Yeah, this is a favorite from that show. We just don't do it much anymore. I've started to have, like I used to have dreams about high school musicals that I was in, and then I had to be in them again, and I was forget- like I didn't know the lyrics, you know, like I'd, I'd forgotten everything. That was a nightmare. Now I regularly have dreams about us having to do Hank and Rita in we're, like on a cruise ship or somewhere where <laughs> like we're booked, yeah. we're in the place, and I realize like I don't, I don't know, I don't have my wig, I don't remember the words. Which makes me think... Which is, we, this is exactly how we should do it again. Yeah. Is to not prepare oh. for it at all oh. and throw these two people out on stage yeah. with the same amount of, uh, you know, horseshit that they've been putting up with. But now yeah. we, they're going to struggle to remember everything. It's just going to make the intensity all the... That's great. All the more. A new so. layer of, yeah, discomfort for of the audience. A new discomfort yeah. for people, That's right? Great. So That's you two, um, I know Joe has to leave here. He has a, a job down the hall. So um, Johnny Carson. But you're going to play one more song for us? Yes. The one with all the mistakes. The one because this is, yeah, we, we don't do this very often. That was a long way of saying, like, this might be clumsy. Okay. Yeah. So um, when you're done, though, are you, can you stay for a few minutes to talk about Hank and Rita? Sure. Because yeah, I mean, I, I, the plan was to talk to you both a little bit about how that came together, et cetera. He's a very busy man. She can speak man, all for me. She can, but she can take it. She, yeah. She can, or if you wanted to go, that that's fine. I too. really just want to go. <laughs> okay. Plus, I kind of want to hear. That's fine. Sounds you know. good. Okay, so this is just guitar on this guy. So ready? All right. When I was crazy, he would calm me down. He's a man who knew his way around The wrong turns that we all make He'd be the first to write He's the man I want to see tonight He's the one who'd always take the blame 
If we ever had to cheat to win the game When I was less than pretty He made me feel alright He's a man I want to see tonight He's a man I want to see tonight Taking my side in every fight Not a hero, not a legend Just a man who hold me tight He's a man I want to see tonight Cause I've had time to live alone I've had time to breathe I've had time to realize He's the man I need He's the man I want to see tonight Taking my side in every fight Not a hero, not a legend Just a man who'd hold me tight Let's do it again (laughs) No, right there We'll just pick it up right there (laughs) See, this is what it would be like if we I know Just pick it up right there Not a hero, not a a hero Man who'd hold me tight Not a hero I'm like glaring that? right now as if I would in character. Right. Oh. I was busy last night. Just a man who'd hold Just not a hero. Not a legend. Just a man who'd hold me tight. He's a man I want to see tonight. If you see him sitting in the dark If he says he wants to make a brand new start Tell him it's okay I know I hurt him too Tell him he can find me next to you Tell him he can find me here with you So glad I was here for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was fun. Yeah, you want to do another one? I mean, that song again? Or do you no. really like it? Oh no, I like that. I, I like it okay. with all. That's with, fine. Yeah, I like the preview of what it would be like to do it with no more preparedness than we have at this moment. Let right. us both nightmare on that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was fun. All right, Joe's got to get out of here. Thanks, yes, Joe. Thank you. Joe, thank you for coming in. I really gotta appreciate it. Got to be in it. Reno in two hours. So. <laughs> Have a safe flight. Enjoy. <laughs> All right. Uh, turn off Joe's mic. Okay. Adios, my friend. All right, now that Joe is gone, how do you handle <laughs> those that many screw-ups? I mean, he was terrible. Both songs. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> Finally, I have a chance to vent about I'm that. I'm kidding. No, that was, yeah. it, was, it was great. It was actually really fun to watch you guys work that out. Yeah. To watch, you know, watch the sausage get made right there in person. So. It, you know, it, I mean, we played together a long time, and we just have a lot of the same sensibilities in terms of really thinking about the audience experience and that, it, that if things fall apart, that can be just as enjoyable if you're watching two musicians who trust each other anywhere from be amused by it to you know we know we're going to meet on the other side of it you know mm-hmm. what i mean yeah. and uh i know i always like watching that more more so sometimes than a super polished 
performance. So screw-ups don't scare us that much, yeah, uh, well, I don't think, anymore. Yeah. That's good. So those were two songs from Hank and Rita. Yeah. Um, he left. I was going to have you guys both here for that conversation about, about Hank and Rita. And, and we'll get to your whole life here. We're going to get to who you are <laughs> and where you work, et cetera. Um, but as long as we've just heard these two songs uh, from Hank and Rita, would you mind uh, talking a little bit about the music first and how you guys got together as a as a pair, as a, as a duo? Oh, as a duo like as the Fry? Yeah, were you first involved? Uh, his band was Fish Fry at first. Um, right? No, were his band was, he was with Blue Velveeta. Well, right. And they had just cycled through their like sixth chick singer. Mm-hmm. And, and I know that to be the case because uh, Ken Bush from the band just refers to me as number seven. Chick singer? Yeah. <laughs> and he and I was um, working in the, the office that Joe works in down the hall. Uh, and he had just done a story on a band I was in with Karen Wright, which was a thing like we did it. We performed very rarely and only at charity events. It was, it was um, Bob Alton and Lauren Kruger and a bunch of CEOs in town. So I think Joe got assigned to do that story for the pre- pre- free press and probably mm-hmm. thought this is ridiculous or whatever. You know, you know, you know. Uh, anyway, so he he came to a rehearsal for that and then interviewed me about it. And I, I remember when he emailed me, like, can I talk to you about it? And I think my reply was something like, yeah, because n- this is the only time in my life anybody's going to ask me about my stuff with music or whatever. This is hilarious. Mm-hmm. So sure. So anyway, the story came out and I, and I thought it was really funny because the title was CEO Speedwagon and I thought that was hilarious, you know. Um, I, and then shortly after that, Joe showed up at my office and said, hey, we, you know, I play with this other band, Blue Belvita. Here's a CD. Would you mind, like, doing some performances with us because we've lost our, our female vocalist? And my response was like, well, is this going to take a lot of time because I'm not all that interested in this, you know? Um, and, and so I did start to perform with them. And, they, and as you know, they didn't perform very frequently because they live in, in uh, all different places. Mm-hmm. And... Um, but it was enough of a groove that we, we knew things started to sort out a little differently in terms of, like, who preferred what in terms of performance and Joe and I as both marketing people I think I think that's part of it had a lot of fun with covers that were like crowd pleasers you know and uh you know Doug Leatherman very into his originals very into turning his back to the audience you know (laughs) stuff like that so it was just like okay well the you know um there were no plans to go forward as the fry which is based on um the music of like 1970s am radio gold you know but our mutual friend Shandy asked if uh, Joe and I would sing at her wedding and it so happened that she asked for some music in that vein like a John Denver tune or something like that so that was the first time Joe and I ever performed as a duo and just realized like we both really get a kick out of playing that music and and out of what it does to the audience and that was very different than what Blue Velveeta was trying to accomplish so that was maybe I don't know, like 15 years ago or something like that and so it was this very organic thing we we decided then to um come up with a list of songs we both knew and um see if the sugar room would let us per, uh, practice there like on Tuesday nights or something like that um so it was a slow steady progression of of just getting uh, more comfortable with more music writing our original music having a little bit of a following and then a few years later we like graduated ourselves to a, a weekend band you know and I think um, that, that actually got paid versus asking if we could pay to practice. Yeah. In and we, we, we both know Shandy very well. I think she's very proud of the fact that she gave birth to the fry. I think she is too. <laughs> and I love that. Yeah. Yeah. She lets us know that sometimes on her wedding anniversary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So that's how you guys, that's that's your origin story. That's how you guys kind of yeah. came about to uh, become the Fry. And now, how yeah. often do you guys uh, do gigs? Is it like every week? You guys? It's, it's pretty, pretty much every week. And for a while there, it was like a couple times a weekend. And then I got a little exhausted with that kind of recently because um, in the past few years, I shifted from working at the university to working uh, as the executive director of the Arts Center of St. Peter, which involves a lot of um, like being on, you know, a lot of like evening stuff, a lot of needing to be. You have to be at the events you're holding. Be at the events I'm holding and be um, like gracious and excited to listen to people's <clears throat> ideas and enthusiasm and stuff like that. And, and I love doing that, but to do that four nights, you know, days when the gallery is open and then nights when we have nighttime events and then come to, um, you know, Patrick's or the Wine Cafe or something like that and, and perform and then also need to um, feel like I need to deliver that same kind of thing during breaks to people because that's what happens on breaks in a small town when your friends are coming to see you. They want to talk about things. And um, I was just kind of losing steam for it. Like I just felt kind of emotionally exhausted, you know, and I was like, Joe, uh, can, let's let's do a spin-off thing where you're playing as much as you want to play but you're doing solo stuff or stuff with other musicians because I don't want to hamper your gig appetite or whatever but I I need to pull back a little bit so now I think we are at a point where like I'm performing with Joe two to four times a month and it feels perfect like I look forward to it every time I don't feel like on breaks I need to like run to the bathroom to just be alone. I did this little thing where before I arrived at this, where I, I deliberately went to see other bands um, to see how they handle breaks. You know what I mean? Like, do you ever notice that that some some musicians are very chatty, like they'll come out and talk with people, but some are really pro. Like Betty Harsma, I think, is super pro at turning around, putting on break music in the you know, so that's coming through the speakers and just like taking a moment. And I was like, oh, that's a thing you can do. So, and that helps you. Yeah. So what do you do on your break? Um, what do I do on my break? Sometimes I go, like yesterday, or when we played at Patrick's, I went and walked around outside a little bit. And that uh, helps you kind of re- reset? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know that everybody would feel that that way, but, but then again, not everybody's day job is being, I don't know if I'm describing that well enough. Like, when I'm there at the art center, it tends to be the place where people who think they might want to pursue something, some kind of creative work. They come in and basically our job or my job when I'm there is to like welcome them, hear what's on their mind and affirm them. Like, I mean, it's happened so much more often than I, than I would have expected where somebody comes in and they, they really have like have something on their phone that they painted and they don't know if it's any good, so to speak. Right. So they're looking for just somebody to say, yeah, that's, that's a thing. What you're doing counts. And everybody you see here in the clay studio, they're in the same position as you. Like they might not call themselves artists, but they love doing this. It counts what you're doing. Here's a program flyer to tell you where we have drop-in groups for people just like you to sort of get a little more affirmation, inspiration, and like move forward with what you want to do. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's so much more of that than I would have expected. And that's just a certain kind of being like it feels a little bit clergy-like in terms of if you're there, you got to be on and ready to listen to what people need. And the whole job is to, and it's not just like altruistic, that ends up good for the art center financially. Because if we're the place where people can come in here like, yeah, what you're doing is worth something, then they're likely to give, become members, take classes. But yeah, I just kind of didn't, I, there came a point where when I was doing that, 
you know, six days a week and then gigging two or three times a weekend. It was like I, I wanted to enjoy those conversations with people. So I needed to have less of them in order to. Yeah. Enjoy Along them. those same lines, you you told me a story a few months ago about um, I believe you said it was a guy who had just left the state hospital and mm-hmm. he wanted to play guitar and you let him like busk yeah. in the art center of St. Peter. Yeah. Yeah. There have been two of those um, that were really powerful for me. This was a guy who was in transition, um, meaning, right, you know, we'd moved through all the stages of treatment and was ready to, to be back in the community. And it was during uh, the exhibition of work by patients, which we do now every two years. And we're coming up on the third one this May, which is really cool. So he was also a painter. He had work featured very prominently there. And he was a musician. And he really seemed to have potential to make that part of his living um, out in the world. So he asked if he could just come play. And I said, yeah, absolutely. And it, it was it was really beautiful to watch because people came in, commented on his paintings not knowing they were his commented on his music I asked him to put a you know open his guitar case and I think he did get a couple tips and it was um I think it was an important part of his of his transition to be experienced not as a patient but as an artist and um he is out in the community now in Duluth and he got in touch with me through totally appropriate channels recently and said like I'm um I'm making part of my living you know doing music and and doing portraits at um whatever like I think they have farmer's market kind of thing in Duluth. So that was really cool. And then just recently, a couple weeks ago, um, a man came in to the art center because he had seen on our public calendar that I have, I've started to have office hours on Wednesdays. And um, I described those the way I just described it to you, like come get, you know, not necessarily pitch your creative idea, but if you've got something brewing and you just want some feedback, come and talk to, you know, the director and, and, and a, a man who we, we'd never known before the art center hadn't known did exactly that his name was ray um, i want to say in his late 60s and uh he had a guitar and he was um pretty nervous like visibly nervous and he said his wife had just died and they used to do music together at church and he hadn't done any music since and he wanted to um it, it, it was that same thing he's like i just want to play for somebody and see if it's do you think i could like hold up at an open mic you know so i said all right well he actually didn't have his guitar. I was like, do you have your guitar? And he's like, yeah, yeah, just in case you asked. So we went out to his car, got the guitar, and uh, played the most gorgeous, gorgeous um, uh, emotional version of, um, you know, Hurt. He did. Oh, yeah. 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 And it was, I mean, it was beyond. It's the Nine Inch Nails song. Yeah, yeah, Cash yeah. Yeah, yeah, via, yep. yeah. Uh, and it, it had every bit of, you know, pain coming through and he just had a beautiful voice and I was like tell you what um put together a set list of like 15 songs let's pick a date uh because I've learned that really it really helps people you know if they have a reason to come back or a a time they got to come back pick a date come back play through the set and if it if it feels solid we'll set you up downstairs with the um the art center's sound system and he did he came back with that set and uh I set him up, and it was a day that the gallery was really full of people coming through. And, and once again, it was beautiful to watch people respond to him and not know. I mean, for all they knew, it was somebody I hired mm-hmm. to do this. And for him to experience that reaction, um, I think, was really great. And I trust we'll see him again and that he's feeling uh, a whole lot different than he did from the first time he walked into my office in terms of what he has to offer going forward as a musician. Wow. Yeah. It was cool. I didn't know about that second one. I knew about the first one, but the second one sounds yeah. amazing. 
Yeah. Uh, but we we got ahead of ourselves there. I want to get back to uh, yes uh, the fry um, and Hank and Rita. Um, just <laughs> glancing through my questions here to make sure because you've already you can cut a few me off. Of you know, if I'm going in a direction, you're no, like, I don't this do is that. Boring. I don't do that. I, okay. I always let people go whenever I'm talking to people. I mean, it's always the stuff that. Um, when I let people go and just keep talking, yeah. that's, that's when I've learned in my 25-year career that that's, that that's the most interesting yeah. stuff is when it comes out that they just keep going. Is it also, is it like a nice relief to have <coughs> that happen and not have to take notes or retain anything for after? You mean doing this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just the conversation is all I have to do. Yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, so speaking of um, uh, the fry... Are there so you guys have been doing this for how many years? I think fifteen. So, are there any songs that you won't do anymore? Um, yeah, it's funny. Yesterday, a guy came up to me, very, very well intentioned. Like he looked very appreciative of what we were doing and dancing with his granddaughter and that. And he came up to me and he goes, "I bet you do Mean Janis Joplin." And I get that now and then, mm-hmm. and I won't do that um, because I know what they want to hear. And I don't have that capacity. I don't have that kind of voice. And also, there's a layer of, I mean, I think it's always well-intended, but there's a layer of, like, I want to hear you cut loose, little lady. Like, that I, you know, like, I just feel like that's an undercurrent, and I'm not, not, I got no time for that. You know? That would be really hard to, to be her anyway. I mean, that's, Oh, yeah, that's Because people I think. know what they want. They want to hear an, an almost an exact replica. Of exact replica. On the radio. Yeah. And you, I mean, nobody can do that. Oh, the woman who came through last year, the tribute oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. singer, yeah. I listened to her that way. I mean, she she, she could, but most, yeah. most people can't pull that off right. to and anyone's satisfaction. To anyone's satisfaction, exactly. And, and um there are a couple songs that that I've thought like everybody thinks like oh I sound great on this like in the shower you know like Son of a Preacher Man that I used to do but then when I listened back to myself doing it I was like Joe we are never you are never letting me do this again and that's the thing we're good at is like making sure the other one doesn't make fools of themselves because we are a co-brand you know yeah. so that's why I trust him because he's not going to let me do anything he's not going to make me feel better like oh no it's fine like if it's not what I would want out there, he's good about agreeing with me. Like, yeah, you're, we're never doing that again, you know. So I won't do that. I want I don't do songs by women who have big voices because it's okay. not what anybody wants to hear. Okay, interesting. Is there anything that you guys have have worked on a long time and just couldn't get ready to play publicly? Oh wow, um, no, not in not being able to have it ready, um. But stuff that kind of falls away, like there's stuff one or the other of us has been interested in and we'll, we'll pledge to learn it or whatever. But then it's if one of us isn't super enthusiastic about it and we won't just won't do it. But I wouldn't say there's anything that's been like a challenge in that respect um, where we couldn't. You know do you, what I mean? Do you, do you sort of self, self-weed self out the, the stuff you know you're not going to be able to do, like the Janice yeah. Joplin stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And then I like picking stuff that um, I like covering um, stuff by men. Like I like I love doing Kid Charlemagne because I really love Steely Dan, mm-hmm. um, and that was a challenge I threw down to the bigger to Blue Velveto a while ago. I was like, all right, this is going to be really hard instrumentally, but I would yeah. really love to do it, and and I love doing it because it's the vocals are unpredictable. If you're expecting a male voice, whether it's big or jazzy or, or whatever, I, I I'm not in danger of like not delivering that the way you want it. It's going to be delivered differently. So I feel very I feel like I have a lot of latitude in how I do those dude songs 
So I, you said you won't do certain certain singers. Um, of the ones that you will do, which ones are the most difficult to pull off? Ricky Lee Jones. Okay. Why is that? Because uh, she's got such unique... Um, Laura Carroll's voice reminds me of her. Like, she's got this unique way of everything, like pronouncing things, uh, her sense of timing. Um, so that's really difficult. To, and it's difficult to pull off in a way that feels like it. it's in that same spirit, but it's not mimicking her. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. She's probably my favorite in okay. that respect. Um, you guys do a number of Fry originals, too, at yeah. every show. How does that creative process work do you guys work together on every song does one person come up with the lyrics the other one the music do you work uh, that, it all together it's been most successful when like with Hank and Rita it was almost all this way where Joe would throw me the audio of like his draft of a complete something like I think for most of Hank and Rita it was the lyrics and then the the guitar part that he had worked out and so if it was a song like these two that I was solo on he kind of had the suggestion of a melody but then I invented the melody part you know, so and and there have been very few songs that I wrote or have written, but it's when there have been, it's been the same way where I've got like I know exactly what I want and I've mapped out for him what I want him to do, and then he will add some touches where I'm not sure what to do. But you know, what I mean, it's not really fifty fifty on each song. We've tried that and it's clumsy. It doesn't. It's it's just it feels like something written by committee when we do it that way. So one or the other will give give like here's what I've got. Eighty percent there. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Yeah. Do you write? Do you write music? Mm-mm, not really. Okay. But uh, but stuff will come to me like, you know, if I get a sense of it of what I want, I know enough of how to you like use my right hand on a piano keyboard to figure out what I think the chords are. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's just enough to be able to um, provide a shell of something. Well, I'm I'm glad you brought up Hank and Rita. That's where, that's where we're going to go next. Cool. Um, I want to talk to you about. Um, I, I, so so I know Joe wrote the the script. Yeah. But I also know that it's sort of evolved. Yeah. Over time, talk to me about that evolution. And um, was was the script? Uh, I mean, a fully. Yeah. Fledged, uh, it know. was. It's it's hilarious to look back because it, it was fully like scripted with staging and other characters and acts and scene changes and stuff like that. And one of the reasons it evolved was because, you know, we've become aware over the years of performing together that like it is so easy to be just two people who show up with just your instruments versus having to organize a larger band or staging elements or anything like that. So let me pause for a second. Yeah. Can you explain what Hank and Rita is in case there's some listeners who've yeah, never heard okay. of it or haven't seen it? So the best of Hank and Rita was a, is a, was a stage play that um, essentially Joe wrote. Um, oh, man, God, how do I explain this? Um, what we wanted to do was create a create something that would feel to the audience like a real-time live performance that was to, to a married couple whose relationship was quickly eroding and that would happen through what what looked like a gig so and it came from an idea where we we were joking around about we should show up sometime it'd have to be out of town but we'd have to we should show up as a married couple um on the brink of divorce and just make the audience suffer through that it would be (laughs) hilarious it'd be hilarious so that that you know then that expanded into this long scripted concept which was really good for like working 
working it all out, but then really got condensed back into exactly that. So we had this show where we would um, talk to the audience as if it was, I think, 1986, and we're here on tour, blah, 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 and uh, um, some really uncomfortable for the audience um, emotional swings ensue where they they clearly start to punish each other on stage. And I think it gave the audience the feeling that, um, like the feeling when mom and dad are fighting like in front of people, like there's people over for dinner and, or, you know, when you're with any other couple and they're clearly at each other and you're just like, oh God, I just want to get out of here. And but, the songs are Yeah, so they choose songs. The... Yeah, it, it was, I, I think it's kind of opera-like in that way, which is why we called it an operetta because, um there's very little dialogue and, and a lot of body language. And so through songs that are about, you know, him loving her and she's just angry and uncomfortable and confused, not saying a word. And the audience is hearing all these lyrics and seeing his intention and seeing her response. And so I, I feel like it was very efficient. Like there was nothing wasted in terms of the actual music. I mean, we even talked about like, you know how guitarists will like strum a little bit when they're talking, when they're bantering. Um, he used that very well in terms of doing it arrogantly, like like at the beginning when Hank is feeling all ego, you know, quite ego robust, and then at the end doing that in a really kind of staccato aggressive way and very sparingly. So even that turned into like a dick move. How how he strummed. And that's that's the reason that I miss doing that production is being able to talk on a super detailed level about like every detail counting every using every possible thing to communicate something like how I as Rita like when I would pick up my glass like how that how to make that look resentful how to make that actually <laughs> be resentful you know what I mean yeah yeah um, and it opened up with um, kind of a What's the opening? Yeah, the so, the, so the first thing the audience hears, um, which which does, you know, assure them this is a production, this isn't really a thing happening, although some people did walk away confused. Um, the first thing they hear is, in darkness, is audio of Rita's letter that says, uh, that she left back for him in the hotel room that says, this is our last show. By the time you come back to the hotel and find this, I'll be gone. I've had it. You promised me, we, you know, we would try to make a home together and that's not happening and you love you love the crowds you love them um the crowds that you know smaller and smaller crowds at these small town bars you have eyes for them and and not me and I've had it and so um when Hank and Rita come out all 1980s country you know uh peppy the audience knows she has she has written that and she's faking it. And part of the reason she's so fine being here and kind of cocky is that, like, she's done. She knows it. And he, she knows it. She knows she's going to walk away. Yep. And what they believe is that Hank doesn't know that. And um, so it's it's um, uncomfortable and uh, confusing as to why he becomes so kind of cruel with his selections. And, and then that becomes clear at the end which I don't want to give away just in case we ever do it again. You don't have to. Um, so do you think that the way you guys were able to inhabit those roles um, so successfully, was was that a product of, and, I, and, and I, there was a chemistry between yeah. you two and there still is, do you think you could have been as successful with Hank and Rita had you not already been playing together for 
10 years? No, because all the like so many nuances are only because of knowing like for instance when it when you have to when you're actually performing and you have to consult like one of you's forgotten lyrics or whatever you know you pull away from the mic and kind of speak off mic at each other which people can still kind of hear and that's always got a dynamic to it right so knowing that that was something to to mess around with like how they looked and talked to each other off my like all the all the little nuances of like being a traveling duo at places that have small crowds and they're sort of like not being well received um it was really fun to bring all that to it but also somehow really fun to be like to be a couple because we're not a couple and so to freely play like a romantic couple you know what i mean so Mm -hmm. to freely play with all of that stuff um with somebody who, like, we trust each other, like I said, very much in terms of, like, if things are going to fall apart, you know? So to make each other, like, super uncomfortable was just really fun because it didn't have, <laughs> it didn't have, like, real strings attached or something. You know what I mean? Like, there's no, I don't know. It could just go really, really far in any direction without feeling hurt. Mm-hmm. Like, I assume if you were traveling and performing as a romantic couple, you would be asking each other, afterwards like did you mean that or did you like was that about or here we go again or Mm -hmm. whatever so it was fun to play at that yeah I guess I'd say too like I would be I would never do that like with my husband because I feel like it would if if I was bringing up real stuff in order to perform it well there'd be conversations to be had (laughs) at at home afterwards you know what I'm saying right right. (laughs) but I can pull all that through with somebody who you know yeah it's going elsewhere was there ever any kind of curveball that Joe? Because part of this was improv, right? I mean, oh, you, yeah. you guys did some different stuff every night. So we did, there... and that was the thing that went from this elaborate script to really just a set list, and then we would we had mapped out where things needed to land between songs, like transitioning from hope to resentment or, or whatever. So yeah, it was it was improv. Was it harder to do it that way versus the scripted way? No, it was a lot easier because I think it could have never been as um, real feeling. For us or for the audience, if it if there were memorization involved, you know, were there any of you, was, uh, were there were there ever any curveballs that Joe threw at you? Yeah, because he's a he's a funny guy. Oh yeah, <laughs> we both did a lot of that on purpose. Like like I would save up things, but it, I, really to keep it fresh, but also to just see if we could throw each other curveballs. You know, mm-hmm. um, I can't remember anything specific, but he you know would. Yeah, say something unexpected that would potentially throw me. And that was just great in terms of, like, um, actual emotion coming through, you know? Like, I could authentically be uh, really miffed or really hurt or – and it was funny. Good. Yeah. So the last I heard, um, Hank and Rita was being made into a film. Can you give us an update on that? Yeah. um, So the – they're pursuing it's in Illinois and it, and it, if it happens it'll be Route 66 related because the main producer is a Route 66 historian and interested in kind of threading together threading this story together with that history in terms of like they're on their tour and it's or their final tour and it's on Route 66 so they're pursuing funding from like the Illinois Film Board and um, some big entities like that and it's funny I have the same feeling as I had as Joe was working on this and pursuing state arts board funding and everything which is, I was very encouraging, but in the back of my mind, I was like, there's no way I'm doing this. There's no way I'm doing this. Uh, and then ended up doing it, you know. Um, and the reason I didn't want to do it is I thought, I can't 
I don't know how to do it. I have no acting experience. I am not interested in the time commitment, whatever. Like, I'm not interested. But I loved the music so much because of when he would be sending me these things, I was like, oh, God damn it. I can't let anybody else sing that. And I told him up to that point, I would help him cast it. Like, I would find him a Rita, but then I heard the stuff and I'm like, I'm no one else is doing this. I'm doing this even though I don't know how to. So I kind of have the same thing with the film. I'm thinking like, yeah, I'm not doing a film. I don't know how to do that, but I might end up doing it. Oh. Yeah. I mean, I just feel like it might go that way. You Mm -hmm. know, once things are far enough along and. I mean, um, why not? I guess why not? When else are you going to be a, you know, get a chance to be in a film? I know. And you know, another thing Joe and I have talked about over the years is like, um, the aesthetic in our, posters and you know things on social media and stuff like that we both really like bands that are very transparent with how they look as they age versus trying to be something else trying to I don't know be cooler or younger looking than they actually are and so that is one thing that excites me about it is the the um the idea of being aging and super emotional like ugly emotional up close is like that that could motivate me probably alone to to do it versus shying away from it that's a great pitch for the movie right yeah <laughs> exactly um before we move on to our next topic um where can somebody can can somebody still get a copy of that music if they want to hear the rest of the songs yeah yeah if you yeah um the album is called the best of hank and rita by the fry and i just looked it up on spotify this morning to refresh myself on the lyrics so it's there uh it's probably at toontown HankandRita.com still exists, which is a good, you know, there, there are no future performance dates on there, but it does um, have a lot of the press that we received, um, you know, while we were performing it in the summary of the story. And yeah, so you All can right. revisit it there. Sounds good. Let's talk about the sing-along. Yeah. You've got, um, so a year and a half ago, you did the Jesus Christ Superstar I think it was pageant it, and sing- yeah. or two years ago. Your, it was your- two years ago, and then we did it again in 2017. Um because there was the, all this demand for it. And um, I learned from that that I don't like repeating things. It was it was a beautiful, fun production that had a lot of different elements than the original 2016 one. But it wasn't as much fun for me because it was... It's just more fun to do something new and do a one and done. So I took a year off um, while people were... I mean, regularly, like, like a couple times a month, somebody would say, like, what are you going to do next? What are you going to do next? And have all these ideas. Um... So Rocky Horror was the reigning favorite, and and I felt ready to do do another production. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by by I felt ready, meaning like it's my, you know, I'm the one um, casting it and and making the schedule and getting the band together. Her so just direct directing it, you know. Um, so I got together with Joe and Tim and Shelley, who I consider the the like a very balanced creative decision making team, mm-hmm. and um, we were talking about how to do Rocky Horror. That's not the way people would expect if they you know they're used to going to the midnight showing and throwing things at the screen and stuff like that because that's how a lot of people know rocky horror is going to yeah the uptown theater or whatever sitting in a dark room full of people who have seen it 700 times oh, right and, right right and so we knew we had to do something really dramatically different to make clear this isn't that i mean you can mm-hmm. still if that's how you're going to show up you you can but you know patrick doesn't want people throwing things at the stage and and also i have i had up to this point no exposure to rocky horror like you know oh, okay. i'd never seen it um 
and no exposure to bat out of hell. So one of those three, I can't remember which one it was, Tim or Shelley or Joe said, well, meatloaf, you know, what about, what if we mash it up with bat out of hell and, you know, weave the music together, uh, like, so it's, it's in order, but it's a couple selections from each and then we kind of bounce back and forth. And then the common denominator is meatloaf because he's in both productions. Mm -hmm. And so that's how we cover letting people know what to wear is the wardrobe elements are you're either meatloaf from bat out of hell with a suit and ruffles and Mm -hmm. converse, or you are, uh, Meatloaf and Rocky Horror, which is leather and denim, and and then a lot of fishnets. So the cast has been showing up regularly in like increasing levels of costume, mm-hmm. um, and it's beautiful. It's just it's great because there's a chorus on stage the whole time, and it's men and women of varying ages and body shapes, and everybody is just gloriously like embracing their. It's not drag, but it's something like they're really playing around with elements that just feel. Um, I guess just fun and unselfconscious. One thing I wanted to ask you about: um, <clears throat> we had a we had a piece in the Free Press over the weekend about yes. this, and one thing that I forgot to mention in my <clears throat> in my haste to get uh, a lot of copy out that day was um, the is work- that why when I was like, "Hey, I sent you the release. I sent you the release." Was a story already filed, and you're like, "Yeah, it was done. Yeah, yeah, yeah." yeah, yeah. So that just in, inside information on that, um, it publishes on Sunday, but I it, it actually prints on Thursday. Yeah, and you know, I should have sent that like a week and a half ago. Sorry. Oh, it's fine. I mean, I it's, it's fine. Um, anyway. But I wanted to mention in the article yeah. that um, you actually sought out the advice of... Oh, yeah, transvestite uh, soup. Right. You went and yeah. you, wanted, cause, uh, you wanted to make sure that you weren't offending anybody or yeah. going well, it, too yeah, it was far like, with I was like, how, how can we do this? Like, we want to do this music. Um, we don't have any, at least not you know admittedly like transvestites or transsexuals among us in the cast so how do we do this in a way that's not appropriating or mocking um and it was a great conversation because whoever i spoke with dove right into like yeah we are a lot of transvestites and transsexuals in this group and we are um uh, we know what we're doing like we are taking back something that's been appropriated or so you know like we we can own this you guys can't um so here's what you can do, you know, and the, and it was great guidance that that did sort of land us in everybody do their own version of sort of like you do you, whatever makes you feel hot, you know, and and fun. Like that is how we've um, interpreted the drag element, and it, it took it it caught on a lot easier than I expected it to. No one has been confused and, you know, in terms of casting or audience members or whatever and and showed up looking like Dr. Frankenfurter. Everybody's doing their own version. Mm -hmm. So that felt good. Good. Yeah. Um, How many people are in the cast this time around? I want to say 30. Um, Well, including like the band, um, the chorus. Yeah, it's a good group. And I had so much fun casting it oh my god and I think this should be called something like maybe I didn't invent it it's probably already out there but it's it was casting based on what people are putting out there emotionally either to me personally or on social media right so all these lyrics that are super problematic like if meatloaf singing them and we're in the the world of me too and you know um there's this one song with the lyric about someone got to draw first blood, you know, and like, ew, that's not anything I'm interested in putting out there right now, sung by a dude. But I am interested in um, what I did was um, the, the song is all revved up with no place to go. 
Rhonda Redmond is a poet um, in St. Peter who um, whose whose husband passed away this past spring, and she has been just I think because she's a poet, she's been wonderfully transparent about the ups and downs of this very unexpected new life she's in of, mm-hmm. of, of widowhood. And she had been part of our chorus before in um, Jesus Christ Superstar, but I'd never heard her sing solo. Um, but I knew that's the right way to interpret this otherwise problematic traditional dude song of like, hey, I'm all revved up with no place to go. And, it, you know, and I, and I am entitled to your first blood or whatever. And I was like, Rhonda, how about you sing this? Because I really like the idea of somebody grieving singing that even though the audience wouldn't know i just think it would make for a killer performance yeah. uh and it does and um so what i mean by i think this should be called something it's like casting based on emotional state <laughs> <laughs> because the other there are a few other women singing meatloaf tunes solo and they're they all have just big voices that that and and capacity to pull a lot of emotion through um uh, you know, a song that you you wouldn't expect if you've just heard Meatloaf do it, and, and Meatloaf's great, but it's very different to have, you know, a, a woman who shares a lot on social media about depression and anxiety and body image singing. Um, oh God, what is it for crying out loud? Um, so that is what has me excited about doing future productions. Like if I can keep doing that, like picking um, music that's familiar, but casting it in a really intentional way and presenting it in a fresh way at Patrick's <laughs> then we'll keep doing this year to year yeah well, a lot of uh, big voices yeah yeah right just the night that I was there for a rehearsal I, I listened to several of them and um, it, it's it's a hell of a thing you, right you have, and, a lot, you have a lot of great uh, talents in this show and so few of them are currently performing musicians like they're people who just became part of our you know, that I became aware of because they heard about the superstar thing and came and wanted to be part of the chorus. And it's almost like an abomination that they're not out there performing constantly because they're so good. So, yeah, you had mentioned um, uh, Laura Carol's Carol. Carol well, I think I'm saying Carol's her name wrong. Carol's. Yeah, earlier, um, she's uh, her, her voice. I think what you said that night when I was there was, was otherworldly, and she, it it's true. Her, her, her voice is really something special. Yes. Agreed. I've asked her to be on the show. I'm waiting to hear back from her. Oh, I hope she does it. <laughs> Me yeah. too. Um, okay, so we don't. So just so we don't keep you here all morning, hmm. uh, let's let's uh, move on. By the way, that is Saturday night. This Saturday night. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. This Saturday. At, uh, Patrick's on third. Mm-hmm. Um, eight o'clock. Eight o'clock. I I think there are people. Um, quite literally planning to arrive like at noon. You're going to want to get there early yeah. if you want to get a good seat. Yeah, and it, you know I know that we'll we'll get some complaints about that, but I'm really okay with that being. Um, Having it be a full house and you can't, you know, it. there's been talk of like, should we move it to, you know, the St. Peter High School or something like that? But there is a magic to having it in a jam-packed bar like yeah. Patrick's. Yep. And so, I think you're right yeah, about that. you got to get there early and that's it. Uh, we are going to be doing a tarot reading mm-hmm. uh, right here on the podcast. <laughs> Anne has brought her tarot cards. My tarot kit in Your my grandpa's kit. lunchbox. Um, and um, yeah. Anne is shuffling her tarot cards, mm-hmm. and we're going to get into a tarot reading right here on the podcast. Yeah, and we're going to do it like, okay, I have this thing where if I'm 
doing it at, a, at an event, um, like recently I did it for three hours at a fundraiser for um, the Backpack Food Program. Oh, and yeah. so people could, you know, bring tickets and, you know, have a tarot reading. And they will invariably, like, be with their date and approach it like this silly thing. And, and, and they'll be like, can he stay here while I'm getting read? Or can she stay here? And I'm like, no, no. Because I can't, it doesn't work for... Uh, it, it's too much energy to interpret or whatever. But the real deal is, I, I say that because every time I, I send somebody away, the other person is grateful. And not that they have, you know, secrets to keep, but it's just easier to think only about yourself and not their response. And and always, too, people who approach it skeptically or uh, like it's a like it's a joke are actually able to get something out of it if it's just this one-on-one experience. Um, so along those lines, we're going to do this reading for the podcast, not for you okay. personally, because I can't handle that. There's too much, you know, my, the microphones are here like you're like a date who's an imposing presence or right. something and like that. It still that. feels like Joe's here. I mean, he <laughs> <laughs> his presence um, just never leaves the room. Right. Um, <laughs> God. Kidding. So, uh, all right. So I, I want to say, too, here's here's why I take this seriously and, yeah. and also take a lot of joy in it. Um, I have all my degrees are in like communications and literature and creative writing. And what I think these decks are is the world's most concise novel in terms of like the history of the human experience. You know, I mean, if, you, if you've, you've studied a lot of literature or just read a lot, you know that there's nothing there's nothing new, you know. We're not inventing anything new. It's all sort of been done before. And what these cards are are they go from zero, uh, the fool, who is like the 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 card of total beginnings, like you're just starting out in a cycle that has to do with a relationship or your job or your health or whatever. And then they go in succession through all these stages we all go through in terms of like uh, loss or feeling that justice hasn't been served or hope or strength or whatever. And, and depending on if they're upright or, or reversed, it has something different to say about like the state that you're in. So the reason I think it quote unquote works is because everybody's experienced all these things and when you lay out the cards it's it's much like if you open a book and you have that feeling of like oh my god that's exactly what I needed to read it's because it just shakes up your brain and then when the things quote-unquote happen like they come true I think that's the same as when you learn a new word and then you see that word everywhere right so when so that's the way I approach it and I think it really does help people um just rearrange the furniture in their head and mm-hmm. see things differently than they saw before. And I and I think it would be no different than if I were to sit there without cards and have people tell me what's on their mind or not, just sort of try to intuit it and bring up something that I learned in my literature studies and be like, yeah, okay, well, let me tell you what your character's going through right now and what's probably going to happen next. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it's like yeah. a p- applied, it's like the application of my MA in literary criticism is tarot readings. Fantastic. I didn't know you had a master's degree in literary criticism. Oh, I do. Theory and criticism. <laughs> yeah. And I remember the MF, I, I couldn't stand the MFA people, like the creative writing people. They just bugged me. And then like 20 years later, I did that degree too. Where'd you so, get that from? Um, University of Southern Maine. I could have done it here because I worked here, but I felt like I always, I already had access to the MSU literature community and I wanted to see if my stuff held up elsewhere Mm -hmm. so it was uh, a low residency program for two years you know you just exchange writing with professors and then have these two-week intensives every now and then Uh, and it was very affirming to get through that and do it well and be like okay 
A, I don't hate the MFA people anymore. B, I know a lot about stories and now I know how to tell some, you know? Are, are you, do you still, are you doing, are you writing now? Do you do no, anything? No, you know, not really. I, I, um, what I was doing for a long time or what got me into the MFA thing, the, the idea to do it was I was writing a lot of really short erotica. And the reason I was doing that was because when I worked here, um, I had never done publications work before. Like, so I'm doing like the university's annual reports and brochures and whatever. And the VP at the time was like, could you just like sex it up? Could you just sex it up? And I knew what he meant, like, but I'm like, well, really, like the the annual report, you want me to like sex that up, you know? So I started to go, like I went to some conferences and I got other literature from other universities and I'm like, this is also terrible. Like, this is not going to inspire me at all. I, I'm going to go find some actual erotica and see if I can pull that into like my work here at the university. Let's see if I can do this. So I remember going to like Barnes and Noble or wherever I, wherever I went, I pulled stuff off the shelves and I'm like, this is also crap in a very different way. Like it does not, it is not a turn on to describe what actually happens in detail and use like anatomical words. Like that's all I knew at that point. Like, okay, these annual reports aren't working for me. What's here on the shelf selling as erotica isn't working for me. Maybe I can conquer like both worlds. So I started to write erotica that was, it was really funny. I would get rejected from some places because they were like, well, this, the sex doesn't actually happen. And I was like, well, that's the point. Like the, the keeping the reader in the place of anticipation by using every possible tool, like the, the content and the form as well. Like, you know, using a lot of poetry tools, like making things short and, and becoming increasingly breathless and then ending the story before the action actually takes place. Like that was my goal. So I did publish a lot of stuff in some really fun um places and at the same time the the marketing materials here got really good like <laughs> really good and I got such a huge kick out of that when um you know a department head would be like wow that just really like that just really pulses and I'd be like mm-hmm, yep it does you know <laughs> um anyway so then I was like well I'm doing all this writing I might as well get a credential for it so I and this is where I wanted to know like does this hold up beyond like Rachel Hannell and, and Sarah Frederick and I would get together and exchange work and they were very supportive of it, but they were also my friends. So I was like, I want to be in writing, not a face, just a page and see if I can get into this program and succeed in it. So I did do this program and it, starting in, I think I graduated in 2008, published a lot of stuff. And then I realized like, I just felt done with the erotica thing. I think because it had done the job it needed to do for me. Um, and I realized like way more of my stuff was about the clothes they were wearing than like the sex, which is when I started blogging more about fashion than, but there was still some like tension in there, mm -hmm. um, which then led to the nice partnership I had with Mankato Magazine for a while doing the That's right. We should point that out. Column. You yeah. had the style column for three, four years. I did. And I loved doing that, but it was kind of the same thing. Like I got to a point where um, uh, I felt like I had used all the available things I could think of to be appropriate to the month or the season or something like mm -hmm. that. And I didn't want to start recycling ideas. It um, happens. I mean, we have people who just, uh, we just had a couple of people drop out recently. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Well, you know, it's cool to change over to something new too. I mm -hmm. love the, um, the comic that Kat's doing now, I think, oh, is, that's which fantastic. is in the spot I, of, uh, yeah. It was the style. We had a replacement for you for, a, for about a year. Oh, yeah. That's right. And then she decided to move on as well. And then you suggested we, we try 
uh, Kat Bauman, um, yeah. who does this amazing comic for us now. So, um, yeah. yeah, she's fantastic. I love that. Yeah. Anyway, um, let's get to this terror. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I can't remember what I was. Well, anyway, we'll, we'll see what this has to say. Okay, so, and the positions always mean something, too. So here we have in the, in the position of the, of the recent past um, is the hermit. And the hermit is a card of solitude, um, not bringing something out in the open. And when it's upright, it means like, yeah, that was the right thing to do. When it's reversed, it means like, yeah, you've, you've um, and again, we're doing this for the podcast. Mm-hmm. Reversed means like, is getting stale and moldy. And, you know, if we're talking about a person, we're talking about depression, um, it is time to... Um, let some outfly, outside influences in. So with the hermit upright in the past position, I'm going to say that you had an appropriate incubation period, you and the podcast idea, and it is good that it's now out there in the world. Mm-hmm. Don't go back to, you know, well. Um, where don't go back to not having a podcast. Don't go back to not having a <laughs> podcast. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But trust your sense of an incubation period. It was an incubation period for a long time. Was it? Yeah, because I was afraid to do it. Wow. And hmm. I, um, it, it, there wasn't uh, anyone at my workplace telling me not to do it. I just don't think it was very well. The the, the concept wasn't as uh, well known. Sure. And now that I just went ahead and did it, uh, it's going over very well at work. So. Well, I'm going to say based on the next card, which is the present, that there was something. Something happened that made you realize you can't not do it. That was larger than the fear of doing it. Because what's in this, um, the card in this position right now is temperance. And that's about um, balance and the blending of things and sort of like not waiting for a right moment or for anyone else to, to do anything. But kind of knowing what needs to be in the mix and being the alchemist of it. Um, and, and also sort of stability and knowing that you, you're you're in you're in charge of the stability and growth and health of the idea. Um, there's also in this card the caution or, or I guess encouragement to always remember that you're not actually seeing everything that's there. There are forces that are like beyond your control that are mm-hmm. going to exert influence on the situation. But all you can do is work with what you what you actually can work with, like mm-hmm. what you have control over. And if you do that, then you know, you know, uh, there will be stability and there will be steady, sustainable growth. Okay. This is in the in the position of the future. I like these together. This is my favorite card. It's it's the stars, the star, and in the deck, it's what follows um, the disaster card, and that's the tower. Here, you can look at that imagery. Okay. Um, and. As I said, like in you know, in the history of human experience, which I would say is you know literature, we know that um, unexpected disaster, uh, the rug pulled out from under you, is a bad thing, but it tends to make room for um, like beautiful things to take their place mm-hmm. in a slow, um, gentle way. That maybe you want to protect for a while before you let anybody know about, but in fact, you don't have to be grateful for that disaster, but you do have to acknowledge like, well, yeah, I guess I wouldn't have had that 
dream or vision otherwise. What this is saying is you don't have any disaster here. It's just the card that follows that. And, and it's the card of like those fragile dreams that, that maybe this podcast was initially. And this would suggest you're going to have another one or more of them or more that have to do with this podcast. This is saying like that's coming so be ready for it and treat it the same way you did this this one in terms of like having an incubation period until you feel like it's time to jump off don't let anybody it's essentially a card of like don't let anybody shit on your idea by putting it out there until you're until you're ready Mm -hmm. until you feel like you have what you need uh to make it solid but do indulge it in all its what might seem outrageousness or or ridiculousness or whatever let that let that play out until the vision's solid enough to take out in the world i like it it's not your last good idea rob that's what this says <laughs> well that's good news <laughs> uh, yeah the end well thank you very live. much I've, ne- I've never had a tarot reading never seen one done never had oh, it wow. done for me so this has been very fun i um i'm doing one november 3rd at um the mecca tattoo grand opening same kind of thing as i did at um the, the, the recent event where she's just going to set me up in a room and I think it's for tips or, you know, tips that go to Mecca or something like that. So if you want another one. Is this for their expansion? Yeah. The space is gorgeous. I was in there the other day to talk about this. and She's yeah. coming in next Monday. Yeah, Megan. cool. That's great. Oh my gosh, yeah. Yeah, that space is glorious. That space is like um, um, woman in power. <laughs> uh, uh, like, it just needs to be a spot on the tour if that were a tour like what female leadership looks like like I don't even know how to describe it other I can't than wait that. to see it yeah it's cool. she, do you have any tattoos does she have she done I do them? yeah she has worked on me yeah cool yeah I have um a Toulouse-Lautrec on my leg that um you familiar with that artist Toulouse-Lautrec he's a poster artist in Paris years and years ago and um the one that's on my on my calf um is Jane of Real. She was the, a big muse at the time, and she was the only woman at the Moulin Rouge who was allowed to wear red underwear instead of white because she was such a such a muse. Oh. And so this image from this poster is her with a, a snake wrapped around her, and what I like about it is um, her expression is not clearly agony or ecstasy. It's potentially both. And then I have a pair of Matisse hands on my stomach. Okay. And a dragon. <laughs> Which one is on my leg? Did she do all of that, or did she? Do uh, some she of that? did. No, no. I take that back. Um, Rob Foster did the Jane of Real. Mm-hmm. Um, she did the dragon, which I got when my kid was just really into dragons, and I kind of wanted to like mark that moment, so mm-hmm. I made him pick what which dragon. And the Matisse I got because I've never really liked my stomach, and I love Matisse. And I thought, well, if I put a tattoo there, it's like when you put a plant on a shitty looking windowsill, and then you <laughs> see the plant. Like, that's what I'll do. Yeah. Did that work? I think so. I like my stomach better than I did without it. Well, good. (laughs) Do you have any tattoos? I don't. Well, that's kind of like, you know, a rare and exotic thing nowadays. It is rare. Most most people, it seems like they've got something. Um, A friend of mine works with Megan, uh, Kelly Bundy. Oh, yeah. And she um, keeps, she has told me that I should come in and. And get get something done. What um, would you do if you were going to? So I, I think I would just get um, you know, like a typewritery font, just Ooh. an E for Emma and an S for Sam on my, oh my upper shoulder. Oh my god! Shelter. Just something simple, but like an American typewriter with yeah. this. I, that's a yep. beautiful idea. Just to, I don't know, 
not to be out in the open, not to have a. I I think tattoo art is fantastic, and I and I love yeah. it. I just I I would never do a huge thing. Yeah, yeah. Mine are all in obviously places that you don't usually see, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I like that that I'm they're just for me. They're not something I'm going to see on my hands all the time and potentially get sick of. So I think that's a really cool idea. So Kelly wants me to come in and get that done, so I might do that one of these days. Um, yeah. Cool. So before we let you go, I want yeah. uh, you you were also an end of life doula. Well, kind of, yeah. Are you going to be? So I got really interested in that. um, Because when you were leaving Mankato Magazine, you you said that you were going to do that. I'm like, what the hell is that? I know. (laughs) I know. I think you thought I made it up. So I ultimately decided not to pursue that training. That's an emerging thing. That's just what it sounds like. It's somebody who helps with end of life, um, just like all aspects of it. But what I was really interested in was like, it, it felt like it was very similar to what I do at the art center with artists, which is like asking people, what do you want this to look like? And then indulging the non-logical, like, you know, literally now I've been at the bedsides of a few people who had very strong, like they are actively dying, which I've recently learned is a term for when there's, there's no, I mean, it's the fast decline where you're, you know, filling up with fluid and turning cold and things like that. Um, and immediately prior to that state, um, I mean, there's one woman who asked me to please clean her bathtub because she needed to, to be ready. And there's no way she's ever getting out of bed, you know, ever. Um, but I did it and then let her know about it, like, um, because I knew it's what she needed in order to feel ready for a journey. And that sounds like a like a like a fluffy metaphor but what I've learned is that people really do have the sensation of being ready to go Mm -hmm. like go somewhere not leave their loved ones behind or die or anything but another one that was my favorite was um a woman who could barely she was barely intelligible um so I got really close and just listened and kind of watched her face and she asked for her purse um her slippers she wanted a collar shirt on and and there again this was someone who was never leaving the bed I mean the staff were helping her you know making sure that she had diaper changes and things like that but she was not you know the only place she was going was or she had the sense of like well I asked my husband about it because he travels a lot I was like so these people all say like they they're ready to go and and I'm having a lot of fun indulging that like just like I would an artist like of course she's not getting out of bed but hell yes I'm going to bring you your purse and your shoes and because that's obviously emotionally or spiritually what you need in order to feel ready to let go so Scott travels a lot and or not a lot but when he travels it's significant like he goes to South Africa for periods of time so that involves a lot of packing and condensing and I was like so you're the only person I know who would be able to who would have vocabulary for what that is on a literal level like what is it what is the sensation of being ready to go and he was like right away he's like it's the gathering of yourself together because what I'm doing is like taking stock and and pulling in close and for him that means um everything in ziplocs with the air sucked out so that he's traveling with as little as possible but just the essentials and I was like that makes perfect sense it's like the collection of your um not the physical self but your collection of self so you're ready to like cross over uh anyway I was going to pursue the death doula like formally like go through a training and and um get certified but then I realized like I went through the training for Mankato's um for Mayo Hospice and I'm really getting to do what I wanted to do just by being assigned patient after patient in this community and being at their bedsides um and I'm really loving it it's like 
really enriching. Part of it for me too, though, is I'm I'm just a planner, and I want to know what this looks like before I'm looking at it for myself or anybody in my family. Mm-hmm. And um, it, I'm really, really glad, and I would highly recommend it. Like watching the dying process next to you know up close with someone to whom you don't have a history or like or an emotional attachment um because i sure as hell wouldn't want to do it for the first time with somebody i love it's difficult to watch but the perspective i get to have is to see like the aesthetic beauty in it like see a body really beginning to shut down and see that as the same natural process as you know a dying plant or something like that it's i don't know that i'd be able to think that way or feel that way if I were seeing this first with somebody close to me. So you're still doing this though? Yeah, you're yeah, still, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that was why I want. I wanted more time. I needed less things in my life that were deadline oriented so that I could do this thing where, you know, I, okay, I'm assigned a patient and now I get a call that they are actively dying and the family needs somebody there and I wanted to be able to be spontaneously available for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think my writing needed a break so that I could figure out some way to write I mean, I got to have a new agenda every time, right? Like I was done with the erotica, done with the annual reports, whatever, kind of done with the fashion thing for a while. And I somehow feel like this end of life, this end of life aesthetic, I think, is what I'm most interested in. And somehow that needs to turn into my next writing agenda. But I needed some incubation time to figure that out. Yeah. All right. Thanks for asking. Well, sure. That's why we're here. We ask questions here. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to talk about, or how's your kid doing? Oh man, he's doing great. Um, it's really funny. During college, he was really frustrated a lot of times about like I'm in all these different countries, but essentially it's just cinder block rooms and powerpoints, you know. So he learned travel alone does not. It's not inherently or automatically inspiring or enriching or whatever. You're just in a place, and it's what you make it. So we had a lot of conversations in his undergrad about. I'm like, you know you're you're an artist, you just gotta admit it. Because if you were in a shed all day, uh, every day, and every day somebody brought in bags of new materials and you had to like build a sculpture with it, would you be, would you feel the way you do now in Ireland or where, all the other places he went looking at PowerPoints? He's like, oh my God, that would be amazing. I'm like, well then guess what? You're an artist, you just have to admit it. And he, and he wouldn't, and now it's so funny. He's um, making art like crazy at the art center. Um, making digital art, making all this agricultural art like tinctures and stuff like that, um, pursuing some formal education in that in that respect. And it's it's like I'm it's so parental, you know what I mean? Because I just feel like ugh, I knew we all saw this, we all knew this. Mm-hmm. So he's great now that he's taking my advice and making art. <laughs> Mom was right all <laughs> I along. Was right all along. <laughs> no, it's it's well, amazing to watch. And how is uh, hubby? He's also doing great. He's um. <laughs> he's seasoned enough as a professor to be able to hobby by the way is uh, Scott uh, Dr. Scott yes. construction management yeah and um, great dude he is a great dude and he's loving being in the classroom and pulling in some things uh, like by taking some liberties I mean he's still you know covering the stuff you're supposed to cover but he's doing some really powerful things with his students about um, having them address social problems and or identify social problems and then talk and write about how the built environment contributes to them or can solve them and that's not something that's been in traditional built environment curriculum but there's just a lot going on right now and he tends to draw students who are um, 
middle, uh, mostly men, half, about half, um, you know, Caucasian farm boys and half um, Middle Eastern students or African students. So that makes for interesting, like, uh, potentially political divisions. But Scott's really good at, like I said, having them, you know, identify a social problem. So like the opioid crisis came up and, and then had a lot of conversation about job safety. And of course, it's not the built environment's problem to solve the opioid crisis. However, we have to think intentionally about what we do and don't do uh, in the structures themselves, in how we manage crews, in how we build teams so that, you know, ultimately the <laughs> it's a social problem like a lot of them are that will affect our bottom line if we don't do everything we can do. So um, he's having a blast with that right now, I Good. would say. Yeah. All right. Anything else you want to talk about? I don't think as long so. As I got we, you here. We didn't talk about my hair, but that can be a whole other podcast. It looks great. Thank you. It's, can, I'm two years into my dreadlocks, and they're finally looking. They're finally looking like I want them to look. Two years. Yeah. How? So, what is the process for dreadlocks? Did you, it, it, um, I did it in Johannesburg. It was a time I was with Scott in South Africa, and uh, uh, it was great. It was a um, a very black hair salon that was very like their advertising was like we even do white hair. You know, we even do dreadlocks for white hair. So I was like, great. And there are a lot of dreadlocks, dreadlocks and braids um, in that country, and hair is just so sculptural. Black women's hair is so, it, it just felt, it felt um, like my people if I had that much hair <laughs> or whatever, like hair-wise, hair I felt like it, it was just very inspiring. So when I was there, uh, I had my, it was post-Rita, so let's bring it back to that and then we'll end on this. Okay. I couldn't, st- after we did Hank and Rita, I was really tired of looking at myself and seeing that character and I didn't have a lot of options with what I could do to transform things really because I looked pretty much like myself in that production and so I started to experiment with woolen dreadlocks and I really liked how they looked and um, so when I next had the chance to go to Africa I had real ones put in which was an eight-hour process of two dudes crocheting um, my hair and basically it's like knitting them into tiny little sweaters there's 78 of them and For about a year and a half, I looked like a pink ball with little things sticking. Like if you can picture that, like a pink rubber ball with little tiny pipe cleaners sticking out of it. That's how (laughs) shitty they looked. For it's, I don't know how people go out in the world because what I did then was weave the woolen ones back in. So it was like they were little pipe cleaner starters that I attached my fake hair to. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. It was pretty awesome. It was it was great. It looked great, but it it looked only looked great when I had the fake stuff in. Now it's all my. This is all real though. Yeah, and I did a thing at the St. Peter Library the other day for the Art Center and um, with little kids. And this girl looks at me like so sincerely and she goes, is it crazy hair day? <laughs> I was like, oh no, honey, that's just me. So what if you decide tomorrow that you don't, you don't want them anymore? Did I'm you not going to. cut them out? No, I guess you would, but I seriously, I mean, I'm 50. Uh, I feel like this is the beginning of my end of life aesthetic. Like, I love the idea now that I'm looking at declining and dying bodies. I really love the idea of it. I'm going very gray, and so I like the idea of it bearing all the color that will change from now till the end. I like the idea of how this would look um, on a deathbed. I'm a planner. I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, how how old are you? You can't be... Well, I'm 50, and so it's like, well, I don't... I mean, I can let my hair grow for 20 years. People do it. I guess that's the thing. It's like, I, I see no need to get rid of them because I can... I mean, I might have some neck problems, but I like the idea of how Marge Simpson that would look. Mm-hmm. But just on a practical level, you, you can't like un, 
No, you that. really can't. You no, it was really funny off. before they started. They're like, almost like I had to sign something like, you realize this is <laughs> permanent, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Well, hey, thank you very much for coming in today. This has been a really fun, a fun conversation. Cool. Great music. For me too. You're a good hang. Thanks, Rob. I'm excited to have you on my show soon. That's right. That's coming up. Um, soon. Early November, I think, yeah. is what I. I think so too. Signed up for. Okay. Well, thank you very much. 